0: Everybody loves the touchdown.
1: Goes to the back of the end zone, and it is a touchdown by
2: The
0: grand slam.
2: Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again.
0: It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. That's it to LeBron. For three to the win. Yes! Yeah! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger.
2: Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. We've got a busy show. Uh, Our first guest is Nigel Melville. He is the CEO and president of USA Rugby. Rugby will be an Olympic sport in 2016. It's one of the fastest growing sports in the United States. We'll talk some rugby with Nigel Melville coming up on today's show. Also, Rand Gatlin, our friend from Yahoo Sports, terrific investigative reporter. We're going to talk about the restructuring of the NCAA enforcement staff. Big, big news there. How will that impact future enforcement for NCAA violations? Also, Johnny Football, interesting trademark ruling around Johnny Manziel, the Heisman Trophy winner from uh Texas A&M. We'll talk about that with Rand Gettlin coming up on today's show. A couple of other notes. Visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Become our Facebook friend. Follow me on Twitter. Find those links and icons on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com. My handle on Twitter is at sb radio i want to tell you about an exciting event that i'm planning for new york on may 22nd at the mlb fan cave in manhattan very excited to have the sports pr summit going on so if you work uh, in the sports industry or pr industry and you'd like to join us for that event go to sports pr summit Dot eventbrite.com sportsprsummit.eventbrite.com you can enter the password sportsprsummit2013 sportsprsummit2013 and you can register to join us on may 22nd at the mlb fan cave great venue we're going to have a terrific media round table with rick buker with uh John Wartime, LZ Granderson from CNN and ESPN, uh, John Wartimes with Sports Illustrated, Rick Buecher is my partner with Everything is on the Record and used to be with ESPN, is a fantastic journalist. Uh, we're going to have uh, one of the top Hollywood publicists joining us for the event, Michael Nyman from PMKBNC, breaking down a crisis PR case study with him. And then we'll look at the risks and rewards of social media communications. And we've got people from Major League Soccer, Major League Baseball, the NCAA, and the PGA Tour who will be involved in that roundtable. Lots going on in the media, the social media space in sports. So we'll talk about that. So again, sportsprsummit.eventbrite.com. And you can enter the password Sports PR Summit 2013 if you want to register to join us on May 22nd at the SportsPR Summit at the MLB Fan Cave in New York. Coming up next, Nigel Melville, the CEO and president of USA Rugby. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Stay
0: in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio.
2: Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Bucher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything Is On The Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything Is On The Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image... Protecting your reputation and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503 701.
0: The website is sportsbusinessradio.com.
2: My guest is Nigel Melville. He is the CEO and president of USA Rugby. Nigel, how are you?
3: Uh, very well, thank you, and uh, enjoying the snow in Colorado.
2: Yeah, you're probably getting a lot of that right now, right?
3: Yeah, it's that time of the year, but it's very pretty, and uh, it's great for the skiing and great for business up in the, uh, up in the mountains. Is
2: that rugby weather?
3: Uh, not really. I think uh, rugby is going on on the Pacific Coast at the moment and a little bit on the east. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it still goes on.
2: Let's talk about the growth of the sport of rugby in the United States. Uh, I read recently two million kids in the United States playing rugby. How are you introducing rugby to kids in the United States?
3: Well, we created a new game called Rookie Rugby, and Rookie Rugby is our entry-level uh, version of rugby it's a non-contact game for boys and girls aged 6 to 12 years of age and what it does is it puts a rugby ball into the hands of kids and they play games these aren't specifically rugby as you would know it this is a non-contact this is a a sort of flag rugby version of the game and so we're getting that into all kinds of places after school clubs school programs and uh, we're doing that via state-based rugby organizations who are helping us grow the game across the country
2: the nice thing about rugby is it doesn't seem like you need a lot to play. You've got the the rugby ball, but you don't need a lot of equipment. You don't need goalposts or anything like that. Uh, so it should be a, a easier game to introduce, wouldn't you think?
3: Oh, it is. I mean, it's it's a case of getting the ball into the hands of of, of kids and saying, look, here you go. Have a ball. You can play. You're all offence. Your defence. You are you you score points. You play. You participate. You know, you don't get standing on the touch lines waiting to come on. You're on all the time, and it's a, a great activity for kids. So they enjoy it for that reason, that they're engaged, they're involved, and they can all score, you know, points.
2: I am definitely not an expert on rugby sure. by any sense of the word. So there's 15 on 15, and there's 7 on 7. Uh, how do you determine when you're going to play which?
3: Well, there's two versions of the game, as you say. One is the 15-a-side game, which is the traditional Uh, sport of rugby is played on a field around the same size as a soccer field and uh, We now have another version of the game called seven-a-side rugby Which has been going on for a long time as a a sort of a festival sport But uh, seven-a-side rugby has now become an Olympic sport. So it enters the Olympics in 2016 in Rio and uh, Rugby's returned to the Olympics because in 1920 and 24 rugby the 15-a-side game was in the Olympics and the USA won the gold medal so We're returning to the Olympics, but with the sevens format. So we have seven on one side, seven on the other. We play seven minutes a half, two halves, and we play on the same size field on a very big field, which is uh, you need great athletes to play in a big field like that.
2: It's interesting to see the sports that are in and the sports that are out of the uh, upcoming Olympics. Obviously, as you just mentioned, rugby's in. We know baseball, wrestling. There's been a lot of controversy about some of the sports that have been dropped. Do you ever – uh, sit back and go, wow, we're pretty lucky to still be in there? Do you think the future is going to prove that rugby will be an Olympic sport for a long time to come? How are your, your feelings on that?
3: Well, I'm convinced it will because uh, Rugby Sevens is a, is a great festival event. It will draw huge crowds and huge support. There will be a great TV audience as well. It's a, it's a tournament that goes over two or three days, and uh, it, it's very attractive, and it's a global game. And I think that global perspective is where many sports challenge. Uh, so so wrestling, for example, or softball that were in the Olympics, it's not played on a global scale in the same way that rugby is. And I think that's an advantage for us.
2: Nigel Melville, the CEO and president of USA Rugby, is joining me here on Sports Business Radio. Nigel, obviously uh, attracting sponsorships, being able to show your game uh, on the media platforms that exist today – uh, those are very important to the growth of your sport. What are you doing in those areas to continue to grow rugby in the United States?
3: Well, it's always a catch-22, isn't it? You know, we all want broadcast. But in order to get onto onto broadcast, we need we need money to pay for production, to get, get you know, the games uh, produced and, uh, and put out there to great quality. So that's always a challenge. But we've got some very good supporters in Emirates Airlines who have been good for us the last few years. Uh, Canterbury, who are a kit supplier – you know they're very good as well, and then recently, which is great, a great step forward for us, the AIG step forward and are helping us with a lot, of, a lot of our youth programs and some of our all-American programs. So it's the first time really we've had a serious interest from a, an American company who actually do see the game globally and understand the potential of it in America. Whereas traditionally we've been looking at, you know, traditional global rugby sponsors who are probably looking for a foothold in America. So we're trying to reverse that because we think that there's an opportunity here for American-based companies to get involved in rugby as we grow. And uh, we, we had a game last year at the BBVA Compass Stadium in Houston uh, against Italy. It's the USA versus Italy. And we had 18,000 people there. So we're starting to get traction with supporters. So if the fans and supporters are starting to follow the games, the sponsors will come, the broadcast will come, and on the back of that we'll, we'll get more and more fans.
2: How do you market your sport in the U.S.? Not only you kind of talked about the youth level, but the collegiate level to fans like myself who kind of know a little bit about rugby, but not totally engaged with it. How are you marketing?
3: Well, you know, you know, marketing the sport, niche sports has always been traditionally difficult, but social media, digital media are really, really effective. And so USA org is our website, and that will take you through the whole all, all ranges of the sport and what's actually happening in America. We have a lot of interaction with our fans, our players, our supporters through digital, through through Facebook, through Twitter, through you know, various forms of, of YouTube videos and anything we can do that can get rugby in front of more and more people, all the better. Um, NBC have been a great supporter for us and uh, took the Las Vegas Sevens um, two weeks ago uh, from Las Vegas and it was a, a great event and we had 60,000 people over two days there. So we're seeing more and more on TV. Our collegiate in- invitational tournament will be on NBC. Um, obviously, we've also got Pan Am Games coming up in a few years. We've got the Olympic Games coming down the road. And we have a Rugby World Cup Sevens in Moscow this, this summer. And again, NBC will be involved in that. So it is getting more visibility. As a result, we're getting a little bit more media uh, in terms of, you know, U.S. Today, New York Times, more mainstream. And the more mainstream we go, the more people see it, and the more opportunities we have
2: few minutes left with Nigel Melville, the CEO and president of USA Rugby. So if you want to be a professional rugby player, what can you expect to make? I know, you know, in in Major League Soccer, there's all types of different levels. Obviously, we know the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball players, what they make. But if you're a good athlete and you're in college and you decide you want to go the rugby route, what can you expect to make as a professional?
3: Well, a rugby uh, paid athletes are only our seventh athletes at the moment. These are the players who are in the full time residency program program at the Olympic Training Center in San Diego. So they get uh, stipends. Basically, it's not great, you know, massive salaries as as compared to the NFL or to any of the, the mainstream sports. Um, we traditionally are amateur here in the US, but a lot of our national team players playing Europe now on contracts, and through coming through our systems here, they get opportunities to go and play in Europe, in Japan where the money is much, much better. So our real challenge is to get professional rugby here in, in America so that people can stay at home and earn a decent living through the sport. But as you know, you know it's a challenge setting up leagues, professional leagues, and uh, there's more failures than successes. So we have to get it right.
2: So over in Europe, for example, if I'm a rugby player, how much do I make annually from playing rugby?
3: A top rugby player will earn, well, a number of them will earn above around a million dollars, but more likely to be earning somewhere around oh, let's say two, three hundred thousand dollars a year at the top end, and down to people on very simple contracts at thirty or forty thousand dollars. So there's a, quite a range. Uh, but the big stars, as you know, get more money, um, attract more people, and uh, people are prepared to pay them more money.
2: Interesting stuff. Anything else that's going on with USA Rugby that you'd like to uh, discuss?
3: Well, this, uh, this summer we're looking for June the 8th in Houston. We're bringing over the Irish national team to play against the United States Eagles men in the 15s contest. And uh, that will uh, be a great, uh, a great event for us in Houston at the BBVA uh, Compass Stadium. And I think that will show again how we're continuing to build on, on 17 or 18,000 last year and trying to sell out a stadium this year. So we're hoping people will come along and watch that and uh, get a taste for rugby and, uh, and follow us going forward.
2: That's great stuff. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. We've got Nike World headquartered here, Adidas, uh, lots of different companies in this neck of the woods. Uh, what about your uniforms, your, your apparel deals? Have you made any of those?
3: Yeah, we're with Canterbury, and Canterbury are a global rugby sponsor. Okay. Uh, traditionally, a New Zealand sponsor. Um, but, uh, you know, we've, we've had a little bit of interest from other people. I, trad- I did work for Nike for a number of years, so you know, we have some contacts at Nike. And, uh, you know, there's the likes of Under Armour, Adidas are all getting into rugby in certain ways across the world. world. So, you know, when the time comes, we'll we'll obviously negotiate with those who are interested.
2: Well, Nigel, I know we were introduced uh, on Twitter. Throw out your Twitter handle so people can follow you.
3: Yeah, I'm Nigel Melville. That's easy.
2: That is easy. Nigel Melville, the CEO and president of USA Rugby. Thanks so much for joining us on Sports Business Radio.
3: And thanks for following us and thanks for your support.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward
3: to watching the growth. Great. Thank you.
0: Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio.
2: or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports
0: Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger.
2: My guest is Rand Gatlin. He's been on the show many times before. Investigative reporter for Yahoo Sports. You can find him on Twitter. A great follow there at Rand underscore Gatlin. Rand, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing
2: well. Lots of stuff going on and you're just the man to speak to about several big sports business stories in the last few weeks. Let's start with the NCAA. I'm really interested in this uh, NCAA investigation of the university of Miami. Obviously you guys and and your colleague, Charles Robinson broke the story. uh, What seems like years ago about the uh, improprieties going on at the university of Miami, but the NCAA because of the way that that has all been investigated is restructuring their enforcement department. Give us the, the story here, the key players, and then we'll talk about what happens next with the NCAA's enforcement division.
1: So in essence, uh, it was found that the NCAA enforcement staff, uh, an investigator in particular uh, who was fired from the association, a ways back, I mean, as uh, he had, in essence, worked collaboratively with Nevin Shapiro's, uh, criminal defense attorney who was engaged in these bankruptcy proceedings to, uh, gain testimony, uh, that bankruptcy proceeding that, they, that they otherwise would not have had access to. To simplify, they were using the court in order to, um, get information that they generally can't get because of their lack of subpoena power. Well, it came to light. Essentially, there was an email, uh, where this investigator Asked, uh, you know, hey, I've got this attorney who wants to answer questions on our behalf. Can I pay her to do this in this bankruptcy proceeding? Well, it's pretty well known in the legal realm that you are not allowed to, uh, use the court in a way that is not directly related to, uh, your matter, i.e. you can't ask questions
3: in an unrelated matter
1: or intend to do elicit responses in an unrelated matter in a bankruptcy proceeding that you're not a party to. So from that standpoint, it's very a very suspect um tactic, especially when explicitly spelled out. Um but uh you know open question whether it's illegal uh bring opinions on whether it's unethical. From an investigator standpoint, you probably could look at that and figure they did cross a line, but it's just interesting when you look at the various ways folks try and get creative when they're getting information. Um, but to, in, in some, you know, after that occurred and became, came to light, uh, that gentleman had been fired a few months before, and then Julie Rolatch, the head of the enforcement division at the time, uh, was also uh, uh, fired and, and had to leave the association. Now she was brought on just a while back, I don't know the exact time frame, but a little over a year ago, if memory serves uh, possibly a couple of years, and it was a very big hire for them. They really promoted her and her ability and her innovative ways. Uh, uh, thinking and so a lot of people thought it was a big splash higher and now that she's out uh, there is a big question uh, about what is going to happen in the wake of this ballot it's an it's yet another instance in which the NCAA has botched an investigation we start with Todd McNair and USC there's a lawsuit going on there uh, we're all aware of what Penn State is going through with the NCAA in terms of the suits going back and forth between those parties and now the Miami case uh, so what they ended up saying was going to happen is they were going to toss out uh, any of the information derived through those bankruptcy pre- proceedings uh, as well as any information that was derived down the line as a result of information gleaned during those bankruptcy proceedings so about 20% of the case got tossed out it's not known whether that 20% was the most material uh, 20% of the case or uh, uh, stuff that was of lesser value. Uh, but it remains to be seen. They've, uh, they've come out with a couple of things in the, in the, in the day since, uh, i.e., uh, Clint Hurt, uh, assistant head coach at Louisville's, um, letter of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, letter of allegations came out and it was revealed that, uh, Hurt had, according to the NCAA, engaged in unethical conduct, a violation of NCAA bylaw like 10.1. So there's just so much going on with the matter that the NCAA has installed a interim uh, replacement for Julie Rolatch, a gentleman who's been working for a law firm that's done work with the NCAA for a very long time. I believe it's over 15 years. Uh, The question, I guess, in circles that pay attention to this kind of stuff is, is this guy qualified to go in there and actually help the enforcement division create cases, uh, or is he being put in place as a buffer between the enforcement division and their ability to conduct their work um as we move forward Uh, because he doesn't have any experience in these matters as far as anybody can tell he's consulted on the opposite side from a risk management standpoint um so you know there's an open question is the ncaa going to continue to be aggressive and going after these enforcement cases is the culture going to allow for that or are there going to be changes made that really stifle their ability to get the job done and if so what does that say about the ncaa in general and their role moving forward
2: yeah, it's interesting, Rand. I think many people listening to this show and just the the public that doesn't pay much attention to this, they think the number one role of the NCAA is enforcement and catching uh, member schools who are cheating and not playing by the rules. When you see a story like this and how badly this was botched, how much credibility and faith does the NCAA lose with not only member institutions but just the public in general that goes, "Wow, do they know what they're doing?"
1: Well, I think they lose a tremendous amount of credibility, and I think that it's been eroding over time. You know, I think if you go back in the archives to our earliest conversations uh, years ago, we were talking about how uh, if enough scandals were revealed, uh, that it would erode the foundation that the NCAA is built upon because this notion of amateurism is. Uh, you know, it's becoming increasingly clear to the general populace that it's pretty much a fallacy, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and and so, you know, when you find out that not only are the schools cheating, but hey, look here at the NCAA—they're breaking their own rules. And Mark Emmert's having to fire his director of enforcement and or uh, high-ranking enforcement official. And you know, there are people being installed that look like they're being put there as buffers so that they, the NCAA doesn't get themselves in trouble. It just starts making you wonder how confident. Are these folks in this realm? And I don't think it's an issue of individual competence. I bet if you talk to the folks at the NCAA, you'd find a lot of folks who are good people, intelligent people, hard workers. I have no doubt about that. And I also believe, just my interactions with folks online, and you know, we have to deal with them in in, uh, on different stories, talking to the the folks in the press office. You say they're all nice. They're they're good people. I don't. I think they believe in what they do. Um, But you know. When, you, when you, you foul up enough cases in a row, and this is true for anybody in any session, uh, you've got to start questioning what's going on. What, what's the problem? And I think the problem with the NCAA, frankly, is not that the people aren't good people or that they don't have good intentions or anything like that. I think it's the policies are just so flawed uh, that it's impossible to do the job as they're expected to do if they want to be effective at certain things without uh, figuring out creative ways to get around it. And when you have that kind of a, a culture internally of uh, not not being able to adhere to the rules and do your job effectively, you got people that are ambitious. They're going to go out there and they're going to try and make things happen, and until the policies are changed to a sufficient extent to allow for these folks to do their job effectively, whatever that may look like, you know, I think this kind of stuff is going to continue happening, or they're just going to become incapable of carrying out their duties.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I agree with you. I think the people at the NCAA are good people. I know several of them. Uh, Mark Emmert, the president, has always been uh, very accessible to me for this show. Um, But I agree with you that the policies need to change. They need to be modernized. And then even more importantly, Rand, is you've got to have a big enough enforcement staff that can enforce those policies. That's the problem is you've got so many different member institutions, so many different student-athletes and not enough people to enforce these policies, you're always going to be playing catch-up. And then I think the other big criticism of the NCAA as it exists now when it comes to enforcement is it's inconsistent. They rule one way with USC, another way with Penn State, another way with Ohio State. Uh, we, you know, I'm in Oregon. The people who are Duck fans are still wondering when the heck their ruling is going to come down, so they're in limbo. So there's got to be more consistency with – uh, the rhyme and reason that comes to, okay, this school is accused of this, they get their letter of allegations, and we know that it's going to take approximately X to uh, hand out a
1: ruling on this? Um, you know, I, I think with the Oregon case, it's really appeared to just stall. And I think it has to, largely to do just reading between the lines with what you said. They don't have a large enough enforcement staff uh, to get things accomplished. in football – For instance, I think there are roughly six or seven folks in the football enforcement uh, division. I mean, how many schools do we have out there? Just look at the SEC alone. Uh, You know, there's a lot of stuff that's rumored to go on uh, down in that part of the country. Stuff goes on everywhere, but you know, that's kind of an infamous area for folks spreading rumors about how the colleges are uh, getting ahead. And you got six people to cover the entire country. Uh, There's what 12, 14 teams in the SEC at this point. So it's just I I'm not sure they can effectively regulate in this realm. If you ask me, I, you know, how could they do it more effectively? Yeah, you can increase manpower significantly. You know, say bring on a 50-person enforcement staff. That would obviously increase the ability to carry a workload. The question becomes, how much can they actually paper through, you know, legitimate means? Essentially, enable to they would allow them to make cases if they're not allowed. To figure out creative ways to get to certain information they don't have subpoena power and people are just becoming more sophisticated in the ways that they see, it becomes very difficult to catch people doing anything other than making more phone calls than they're supposed to or sending too many text messages and that's why we see some of those so many of those secondary cases because that's the low-hanging fruit that's the stuff that's easy to get to but some of the more nefarious stuff that's going on that most folks in the industry know is occurring that stuff's hard to get to because the people that are engaging in those particular instances of impropriety are operating usually in a much more sophisticated fashion. and are not going to get caught.
2: My guest is Rand Gatlin. He's an investigative reporter with Yahoo Sports, a great follow on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin, G-E-T-L-I-N. Let's continue with some NCAA news. I thought this was an interesting story. The NCAA said that Johnny Mandel – Otherwise known as Johnny Football, Heisman Trophy winner from Texas A&M, can keep any lawsuit money he wins from enforcing his Johnny Football trademark. Won't this encourage student athletes who are stars in the uh, college realm to trademark their nicknames and hope to enforce that trademark in the hopes of earning some money?
1: I mean, certainly you would seem that way, right? And the idea is uh, Johnny Football. Uh, Aka Johnny Manziel can't go out sell t-shirts proactively uh, and footballs uh, and things of, of that nature with his tr- with his trademark name Johnny Football on there for profit. However, if somebody infringes on his trademark and creates those t-shirts, footballs, action figures, et cetera, on their own and sell those things, things, Johnny Football can go out there sue them for damages related to the infringement of the trademark, and he can recover those. So uh, interestingly, Clay Travis wrote about this uh, yesterday, and I haven't read everything, um, but he said essentially, think about this: uh, if you were a uh, enterprising booster, why not go find a buddy? Let's use Oregon for an example. So you know, well, if, if you're if you're an enterprising booster, you go find somebody in Portland that you know that's not a booster of the University of Oregon, but a good buddy of yours through business. You ask them to create uh, 100,000 Marcus Mariota shirts. And go ahead and print those off and then uh, have Marcus Mariota send you a demand letter saying you've infringed my trademark. and I want to, I have an inventory of how many things you've sold at what a price, and then I want you to compensate me for uh, infringing on my trademark. <laughs> What's to stop folks from doing that? essentially what you've done there then is uh, legalized the payment of players uh, if they utilize this loophole. Now, there are a number of issues with that. Uh, and Andy Staples actually just published an article about five minutes ago that I haven't read, but I think it'll argue the counterpoint, which says, hey, Texas A&M told us the NCAA said that would be a violation. And furthermore, uh, you're not allowed to use the courts in order to uh, funnel money from the petitioner uh, to the, or I'm sorry, from the respondent to the petitioner. So in essence, what they're saying is don't worry, it's not going to occur because it's against the rules. Well, what has stopped people from cheating in the past? On, on the same violation of rules. You know, I just think that you, you have created a really sophisticated loophole, but there's a way to cheat because the NCAA has to go back and prove that there was an orchestrated uh, process to, to purposely violate these trademarks in order to funnel cash to kids. Good luck. You know, The people that are going to set that up likely, the folks that are sophisticated enough to go through that, are generally going to be a little bit more intelligent than your habits bear. And if they are careful and they cover their tracks well, and interactions between the two people that are figuring out a way to violate that trademark and at what 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 uh, amount of income, you know, nobody has to know what their purposes were. They can stay strictly between them. So it's the same thing we we're talking about in the, in the first part of the segment. There's just fundamental problems with NCAA policy and this notion that these kids can't get uh fair market value for for. The value they generate, you know, it's it's a problem. You can't stop it, and and it's it's only a matter of time before, you know, kind of that house of cards comes tumbling down in terms of allowing them to generate their own income off of their uh, their marketing.
2: So, according to some stories I've read, uh, the school bookstore at Texas A and M sold out of all of their 2,500 replica Johnny football jerseys that they had. Can Johnny Football, a.k.a. Johnny Manziel, can he sue his own university and say, hey, you can't sell Johnny Football stuff anymore without my permission?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't see why he would not be able to. Now, he has signed something with the NCAA when he comes in. I haven't read it uh, line to line, so I I don't want to put my foot in my mouth here, but I would assume he, he signed something with them that allows them to use his likeness. Uh, and to, I mean, we all know they signed the document that says we can use your likeness, uh, throughout perpetuity throughout the university in perpetuity. So, so they're signing away certain rights. Is the, uh, school bookstore and the vendors that are providing them with, uh, the product they're selling, are they immune from suit? I don't know. And certainly I think Tony football could sue those individuals. There's a question as to what the outcome would be, but what kid is going to go sue his university, especially when it's at the height of his fame?
2: Yeah, I just think it's going to be interesting. I think this particular ruling has opened up a can of worms, and it's going to lead to uh, a lot of debate and discussion in the future when other student-athletes go out and trademark their nickname and see how that's enforced and who can use the nickname and who can't use the nickname and who gets sued and who doesn't get sued. That's going to be interesting to me. Let's move on to our next topic. Uh, Billy Hunter, the head of the NBA Players Union, he was voted out by the players during All-Star Weekend. You and your uh, colleagues at Yahoo Sports were on the forefront of covering this story and some of the things Billy Hunter was doing inside the union to abuse his power. Um, so he's out now. Anyone who knows Billy Hunter knows that he's probably not going to go quietly. Where does Billy Hunter go from here? Where do the NBA players turn to next for a new leader of their union?
1: Well, it's a, uh, it's a it's been a very complicated process. It's unfolded over the course of really to trace it back a few years, but uh, certainly over the past year, there's been a lot of movement in terms of Billy Hunter's position over at the union. I believe he's been there for about 16 years, uh, and was credited for, uh, creating a lot of gains for players, uh, based on where they started and where they're at today. Now, you know, upon closer inspection, it became clear that there were all of these issues with the nepotism, and, uh, you know, the, per- the perception that there was money being funneled to family members uh, without necessarily regard to their ability or their value at the price point they were receiving um, as employees. But ultimately, the players said we need new leadership, and uh, they unanimously voted them out. From here, uh, they essentially have installed an interim. Um, I believe it's Ron Klempner, uh staff attorney over there, is the interim. Uh, executive director and in the meantime, they're looking for a replacement. One name that has been floated is the head of the ATF, uh, currently and that they might be looking to him. There have been a few other names floated, but I don't know that we'll get much clarity on that in the near term. Uh, but it'll be interesting to watch, watch it play out. There's a lot of jockeying behind the scenes, uh, from folks in the industry who would like to have that position. And, uh, that's been very interesting to follow. Um, but beyond that, you know, the players basically had a meeting at All-Star Weekend. LeBron James stood up uh, and was a very vocal advocate of creating change in the union. And it's our time to take our union back. There's a lot of the rhetoric you were hearing uh, from the players, and frankly, it, you know, it's about time uh, from from their standpoint, just for the simple fact that, you know, regardless of whether uh, Billy is ultimately found. Uh, beyond anybody but the Paul Weiss report that came out to have engaged in various instances of what would term impropriety. Uh, the players were not as involved in the union as I think they recognize they need to be. There's a lot of money that flows through that place. There are a lot of decisions that impact their ability to generate revenue. And as money is being spent and it's their money because it's based on, you know, the marketing dollars that they generate and the dues that they pay, perhaps they should be a little bit more involved in the union's administration. And uh, at this point, I think that's been the major takeaway, what's come as a result of this entire fiasco with Billy Hunter.
2: Well, and you would think, too, that there need to be more checks and balances. So the players need to pay better attention, but there need to be more checks and balances so that someone in the future can't do what Billy Hunter did allegedly by you know, hiring members of his own family and uh, allowing people who were close to him to profit off of doing work for the NBA union, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, you know, the point you initially made coming in, absolutely there needs to be more checks and balances. I think a big misperception in the public, I mean, I'm not even sure the public thinks about it, but if you take a second to think about it, I would assume a lot of folks think these are large organizations that have, that are very uh, sophisticated, that have varying layers of protections embedded in their organizational framework. And the reality is when you look at the MBPA, it was actually a very small shop. Now, they were dealing with a lot – comparatively, they were dealing with a lot of money coming through the door. But Billy had uh, reportedly his best friend on staff as the attorney for years, a gentleman who passed away a few years ago. And then he had uh, his daughter, Megan, on staff as a director of special events. She's making roughly $180,000 a year at last check. Then he had his daughter, Robin, on board uh who's in charge of concierge services, she's making eighty five, eighty-seven thousand dollars. He's got his son and his company. They're being paid roughly, you know, five hundred thousand dollars a year, six hundred thousand dollars a year to provide services to the place rather than with independent audits. So here's all this money flowing out to Billy Hunter's family members and at no point during you know the ten to sixteen years that this was occurring in varying degrees did anybody uh call them on it um, you know, in a sufficient a fashion to, to to change things. So it's a no-brainer. The players really have to create more layers of uh, checks and balances within their organization. And they have to take it seriously because these organizations exploded. If you think about when Billy Hunter came in, I don't know the exact figures, but the union was in a hole financially. Now there's an incredible surplus. Well, imagine when a company, an organization, grows that fast. If you don't build those checks and balances into the framework as the company grows, it's very, very difficult to – back into that company later on and try and implement uh, those checks and balances um, based on what's occurring in the company as a result of them being absent for so long. Yeah, you know, It's just a much more difficult beast. So they have to pay attention to fixing what's broken, but probably more importantly, is moving forward, addressing those things as they come up on a real-time basis and doing so effectively because there's always going to be complex issues within these unions. There's just too much money flowing through them and too much at stake.
2: Last question for you. You've dealt with athletes a lot. How do you get them to get more involved in their own union? Because, you know, look, whether it's, hey, a few years ago, uh, the NBA sends them uh, the new game ball that they all got at their house, but none of them tried out. And then when they started the season, uh, no one liked the ball, and they had to change that over to – you know, people just don't know the issues of their own league, and again, this is their livelihood. There's a lot of money at stake. How do you appeal to these players to get more involved if you are running the union?
1: Well, th- this is a uh, you know probably not the most effective way to illustrate it, but, but you know these players don't care, as you pointed out. So I think the only way to get them to be more involved, generally speaking is to punch them in the mouth, so to speak, with information like what these guys found out about the NBA PA. You know, uh, they don't care until it impacts them in a very material way. It's kind of like taxes. You know, in California now we're paying, if uh, folks in the state are, if they're in the highest tax rates, they're paying 55% of what's coming in. so at some point folks start saying, wait a second, this is material. I, I don't know about this. I might move to Colorado. With the players... Any money that's going out the door pales in comparison in situations like the one with Billy Hunter to the total amount of money being generated and spent. So it's not something they pick up on right away, and it's spread out across all the players in the league. So situations like this where you know it is just abundantly clear that they dropped the ball and that they're failing themselves, and there was actually a relatively significant amount of money spent, uh, not necessarily in the ways they would have spent it in if they had better controls, You know, I think that wakes them up now. There was this rallying cry again at the – All-Star game, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, But historically speaking, players have been involved in their unions in spurts. They're much more interested in focusing on their sport and their personal lives than they are in being involved in the administration of their union. And you can't expect all of the constituents of these unions to be involved. Certainly not the way the general populace works in popular elections, but you can't expect uh, a qualified minority of those players to jump into the fray, 20% of them say, and and more importantly, some of the biggest stars so that they actually have sway over the constituency, to be involved in the process. Because uh, if you look at the people who were on the executive board uh, in the past, they're very often middling players or journeymen who are looking for what the next step is because their basketball careers haven't necessarily provided them with the longevity of some of the superstars careers have provided them. So you know we'll see these kinds of things keep going on. Um, you know, they're, they're, the NFL PA also, uh, has some stuff that pops up from time to time where you look at it and say, geez, I, it's, I'm not sure if players are aware of the stuff or do they know about it? And when they find out, they tend to not ever do anything about it. And, you know, ultimately, uh, that's a them issue And until they figure it out because stuff is important for them. It'll just continue to be what it'll be. And, uh, I'm not sure that'll happen anytime soon, but we'll keep
2: our eye on it. Terrific information, as always, from Rand Gatlin, investigative reporter for Yahoo Sports. Follow him on Twitter at rand underscore Gatlin, G E T L I N. Rand, I always appreciate your time. Uh, let's catch up again soon.
1: Thanks, Brian. Good to be
2: with you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
0: Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA.
3: It is always a pleasure, Brian.
2: Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Folster. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com. And subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And stay connected to the business side of sports. Only with Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. All right, we're back. Solid show this week.
2: Thanks to Nigel Melville, the CEO and president of USA Rugby for joining me. Thanks to Rand Gatlin, investigative reporter with Yahoo Sports for dropping by. Great conversation with him. Always enjoy our catch ups. I want to remind you that you can find us on Twitter at SB Radio. You can find our podcast on iTunes. Just type in Sports Business Radio, or you can find us at sportsbusinessradio.com. We post every show there. We also post our best interviews at sportsbusinessradio.com in our interviews section if you want to check that out. Thanks to our show staff, our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Thanks to Josh Blank and Doug Zanger. Again, a podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand anytime you want. Just click on the iTunes icon on the front page of SportsBusinessRadio.com to have our show podcast downloaded to your iTunes every week. We'd love it if you post a review of our podcast. Uh, Also, I told you at the beginning of the show about the Sports PR Summit that I'm organizing, bringing all the top sports executives from the PR space together May 22nd at the MLB Fan Cave. In New York, if you want to register for that, go to sportsprsummit.eventbrite.com and enter the password sportsprsummit2013. You can follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter at sportsprsummit, and we're on Facebook at facebookcom sportsprsummit. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Bucher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway. To form media and social media training firm, everything is on the record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215.